0: your Bible, head over to Acts chapter 9. Will you go there just for a moment? Acts chapter 9. I want to begin by asking you to notice something down in verse 31. So this is Acts 9, verse 31, where Luke writes this, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up, And going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. That rather optimistic assessment of the work of these New Testament disciples stands in sharp contrast to an experience I had a couple of years ago when I was invited to do a special event for a congregation in the city where I was living at that time. So I showed up for the first night and noticed that this particular church building was large for that part of the country. It was different than here in the South where churches tend to be larger. This was in the upper Midwest where churches tend to be pretty small. But, but this building was large. I guess Max had hold two or 300 people. And I remember at one point during the week, one of the older sisters took me aside and was telling me about past gospel meetings they had had and some of the preachers who had come to, spoke, to speak for them, and now they had filled that building up. She said, we, we had so many people, we had to put chairs in the aisle to accommodate the crowd. Let me just say, that's not the kind of crowds we had the week I was there, okay? Maybe it had to do with the preaching, I don't know. But the truth is, there was hardly anybody left. There were Two rows right down front on the left side and about twenty people were sitting there. That's all that was left. I got there early in the week one night. I was the only one there except for the guy who opened the building. And so I kind of nosed around a little bit. I am a little nosy that way. There was one hallway that went off in one direction into this classroom wing. And so I went to check out their Bible classes and peeked in the doors, and clearly what had happened is over the years when they had stuff that they didn't know what to do with, when you buy stuff with the Lord's money, it's hard to throw it away, right? So every church building has these places where they stick stuff, and that's evidently what had happened with these classrooms. Over the years, they just shoved stuff into them, and over time, they had filled up and collected dust, but I could tell you, I just looked in a few doors and could tell pretty quickly There were no Bible classes going on in there. The classes had become just dusty storage closets. And it wasn't hard to figure out why. There were no children. That crowd that sat down in the front in those two pews, they were mostly older people and no children at all. You see, what had happened over the years This congregation had experienced a terrible decline, and now now all that was left was a handful of, of mostly older people just struggling to keep the doors open. And while I hate to be pessimistic, folks, my expectation
1: is that their efforts are unsuccessful. That church isn't just declining. It's dying. It won't survive that's kind of a sad story, isn't it? And yet, brothers and sisters, it
0: is not an unusual story. So Max and I visit different churches over the course of the year. What do you think, a half dozen or so, maybe eight in our meeting work and vacations and stuff like that? And occasionally, I will visit a group that seems to be doing well. The group seems to be thriving, but not very often. More often than not, there are a few that seem like they're maybe holding their own at least at the moment. But but the truth is, the vast majority of times when I visit other places... I visit church families that are somewhere in that process of decline. And and what I mean by that is this, if you could go back two or three decades, what you would find is year by year by year, the numbers get smaller and smaller and smaller. The group is dwindling. And when I say things like that, sometimes I get pushback and people will say, come on David, it is just about the numbers, right? Yeah, but brothers and sisters, when the number is zero, who opens the door?
1: At some point, it becomes about the numbers, doesn't it? Those who study
0: church growth more formally than just my little experience or Max's experience visiting other places tell us that it's happening all over the country and not just among our brethren. According to Gallup, church membership has fallen 20% in the last two decades, from 70% of people having some kind of a church affiliation in 1998 to only 50% saying that in 2018. Churches are declining. The question I think we need to ask is why is that happening? And I know you're sitting there thinking to yourself, wonderful, David's going to come shed this bright ray of sunshine in our life this morning, share all this negative news with us, and I really don't want to do that today. I don't want to be negative. I do think we can't afford to be naive about this and bury our heads in the sand and ignore what's going on all around us as churches decline, as though it couldn't happen where we are. Don't you think it's smarter to be wise about this? And to look around and say, well, if churches are declining, why is that? And what do we do about it? To be sure on our watch in the place where we work for the Lord, what do we do to be sure that that does not happen here? I would suggest to you, brothers and sisters, that we are confronted with a simple church choice. Either we are going to thrive or we are going to die. And the question is, which will it be? And to answer that question, we have to know what makes the difference. And so to illustrate that for you this morning, I have three questions that I think we will have to answer that will decide whether we thrive or whether we die. Question number one is this. If we're going to thrive or die, we'll have to decide, well, are we going to teach lost people? I begin here and put it first on my list because, honestly, it belongs first on the list. It is the question that determines whether churches live or die. If we are not out in our community, in our circle of friends, connecting with people around us that don't know Jesus, and if we're not extending invitations for those people to to come and see, just like in John chapter 1, that same program, come and see, and setting up Bible studies with those people in helping them to know Jesus and watching as they're born again into Jesus Christ, as they're baptized into his body. If we're not doing that work, then start the clock because we're beginning the process of dying. Now, the problem with saying that is that sometimes churches can avoid that reality for a while. Do you realize that? Sometimes we can neglect this work and still not begin the process of decline, and the reason that is true is because of where we live. Sometimes groups of disciples will find themselves in parts of the country that are prospering economically, and you know where there are lots of jobs, that brings people, right? And sometimes in that crowd that's coming for work, there will be, there will be other disciples. In fact, the truth is, some of you are here this morning because you got transferred here. Someone made you move to Beaumont, Texas for your job, right? That's what happens. And what happens is people move here, and they look around, and they say, well, you know, we need a place to worship. We think we'll become part of the Allen Road family. What happens to our attendance numbers? Yeah, they start going up. And some of those families start reproducing and having kids, and those kids filter into our Bible class programs, and all of a sudden you have, you have 92 two-year-olds, right? Right? And we're figuring out who's going to contain that big group back there, right? It happens. We get these big classes that start growing and lots of activity is poured into that. And then we get in here and we sing Shield about us. And man, isn't that just great worship? Every time Greg leaves that song, I feel like when I get up and preach, I'm interrupting great worship. It's such a, a moving song. You get in here and the singing just raises the roof. And, and you know, you just feel like the church is thriving, right? Do you realize all that can happen? While the primary mission of the people of God is neglected. Do you realize that? A mission that the prophets talked about all the way back in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 12. Do you all remember studying Isaiah chapter 12 a while back and talking about how the prophet there describes the time when the Messiah would come? And one of the things we're told about the people in that time is that they're going to make known his deeds among the people. They're going to they're tell the nations, did you realize the prophets talked about evangelism? And then you get to the New Testament and what's the master doing? Jesus said of himself in Luke 19 and 10, I've come to seek and save that which was lost. In fact, he hung out with sinners so much that he was crit- criticized for that. Luke 15 verses 1 and 2, the enemies are critical of his association with sinners. I like Jesus' response to that. He said, I'm a physician. Who should I be hanging out with? The sick people, right? And then before he left this earth and went to heaven, he commissioned me and you to join him in this great quest. For souls, He said in Matthew 28, verse 19, go make disciples of all the nations. You plug that back into Isaiah 12. You see how those things go together? Mark says, and Mark, he says, go preach the gospel to every creature. It is our call. It is our duty to go share the message. And we could see our numbers go up and the building fill up without ever fulfilling that mission. But you know what the problem is with depending on the economy to bring people here? Brothers and sisters, churches that live by the economy, start the countdown clock. The day is coming when they are going to die by the economy. Because listen, economic shifts just happen. Eventually, people are going to be finding jobs somewhere else, not Texas, and guess what? They're going to pack up and they're going to fill up church buildings in some other part of the country, and if we're depending on that to fill this building, we're going to empty it too. Churches that live by the economy will one day die by the economy. So here's the question for me and you. Will that decline ultimately happen here? Will we one day die because we didn't fulfill our mission to the lost? There needs to be be a lesson in this for us. If we want to look around and wonder why churches are declining, this is it. They're not reaching the lost. So what about me and you? Folks, we need to be passionate about the work of evangelism. You know, somebody who used to attend here said to me one time, You know, I really get tired of hearing about evangelism all the time at Dallin Road. And I didn't say it, Wesley, but it was on the tip of my tongue. I thought, man, you're going to the wrong church. (laughs) Because you're going to hear about evangelism in this church all the time. Why? Because it is our mission, it is our responsibility. A month of Sunday shouldn't go by without somebody standing in this pulpit and stirring us up about teaching the lost. We need classes that equip us to reach the lost. That's what the tactics class is about. Sorry, Max, I'm not really just trying to promote my class, okay? We got some other good classes going on in here too, but we have classes all the time that are about evangelism, about how to reach lost people today, because that is our work. You know, there are a few things we can do to stir ourselves up about that as a church family. But do you realize that primarily evangelism is an individual responsibility? We talk about it as being a work of the church, and it is in a sense. But primarily, evangelism is about me going out into my circle of friends, finding out who needs Jesus, taking the risk to start that conversation, to plant that seed, to make the invitation. Folks, if this is going to be an evangelistic church, it is
1: up to me. I've got to do my thing. We need each of us to do that because you know what's at stake? Our survival. Churches that do not teach the lost are going to die. We don't want that to happen here. We've got to teach the lost. And I need to move on. I could
0: go on and on about that this morning. I've got some other things I need to say to you today. Because there is another reason churches decline. Churches decline because they do not take care of their kids. And so the question for me and you is, are we going to take care of our young people? Let me tell you why I put that on the list. When I visit churches that are in a state of decline, it is not uncommon along the way, for someone in that church family to make a statement like this. I bet you've heard it too, Max. Somebody will say something like, if we just had half of the kids that grew up in this church, if they were still here, this building would be full. Ever heard somebody say something like that? So when I hear that, the question that immediately pops up in my mind is, where are the kids? Where did they go? Well, you could account for some of that by saying things like Texas A&M, right? Kids graduate. I mean, two-thirds of our kids are leaving us this year. They're packing up, and they go off somewhere else. Listen, if A&M takes any more of our kids, we did an embargo against that Twin Cities church over there because they're getting a bunch of our young people, right? Then our girls go over there, and they meet some punk dude and fall in love with him, And they marry our girls and take them off to somewhere else. Isn't that terrible that it happens that way? That explains some of our kids. David, you're with me on that, right? You can do something about it. And sometimes kids go over to Houston because there's more jobs over there. I know y'all say, what are you talking about, David? Where are your boys? They grew up here. Tampa and Denver. Tell me about it. I moved back two years ago to be closer to my kids in part and Within two years, they both moved 1,000 miles in
1: opposite direction. Were they trying to tell us something? <laughs> but that's not what happens to most of the kids, is it? They're not just marrying people and moving off to other places. They're growing up and they're leaving home. And they're leaving Jesus.
0: And this church family knows about that too because we've got young people who grew up here who still live in Beaumont, Texas, who are sleeping in today. They're not here because they're not serving God anymore. And in some places, folks, those numbers are dramatic. It's half. It's 60%. It's 70%. It's the vast Majority of the kids. It is epidemic in the broader religious world. Look at the church up the street with the great youth group program. Hundred kids going to all those youth group activities. Don't be impressed. They'll lose 70 or 80%
1: of those kids over the next decade or two. I am not saying that our young people are more important than anybody else. You don't hear me say that, right? They're just
0: the most at-risk group in every church family. And so I would suggest that one of the takeaways for me and you is that we need to take care of our kids. We put a lot of emphasis in this church family on our young people. No apologies for that. We don't want to lose them. And so Bible classes become important. We're getting to the end of a quarter. We've had some dedicated teacher who took the summer months to teach Bible class. They've been working with your kids. Will you let them know this morning before you leave how much you appreciate the work they did for your children in Bible class? We need rock-solid Bible classes in this place that help our children develop a faith that can withstand the storm. We need to help our kids figure out what their gifts are. First Peter 4 and verse 10 says that everyone has received a special gift from God that needs to be employed in serving Him as good stewards of the grace of God. One of our responsibilities is to take all these young people here and while they're here help them figure out what their gifts are. What can they do that can be plugged into the kingdom of God? And then help them develop them and, and hone those gifts so that when they leave here, here's our language, right? They're equipped to serve. They're ready to go somewhere else and roll up their sleeves and get to work for the Lord. That's why we have these these training classes for our young people. That's why we got folks gathering the young people and taking them to visit the shut-ins and things like that. Because it's equipping them to be able to serve the Lord. And then all that other stuff. There are going to be devotions tonight. For all the high school, junior high, college kids. Just last month, we had a special event that we have every year just for young people to try to address their needs. We devote a Sunday night once a month, every month, just for kids to focus on their needs. You know what is odd to me? That for all the years I have been here, there's always been a percentage of our parents who didn't see it as important for their kids to be part of that. I got to tell you, I don't get it. Not important to get my kid to a Devo. Not important to get him into a training class doesn't matter whether they're here for Teen Weekend or not. I don't understand that. I'm thinking, do you not know what the numbers are? Is it not important to help them network with and build relationships in their church family? What do you want them to do as an adult? Because what they're learning now is what they'll do as an adult. That was a little tart this morning, wasn't it? That's okay. We need to hear that. There's too much at stake not to be plain about what the challenges are. But I need to tell you something else, folks. It is not a battle, this battle for our children. It's not a battle we're going to win in this church building. You understand that, right? Church can do some things to help with kids. And, man, I want to do every last thing we can to help our kids. But at the end of the day, it's not going to be one here in the building. It's going to be one at home. I think about Moses writing to the people of Israel Deuteronomy 6. Is this getting well-worn territory in your Bible, Deuteronomy 6? Because every parent and grandparent needs to know about it. Deuteronomy 6, in the first three verses, Moses tells us he's thinking about the same thing we're talking about this morning. Future generations serving the Lord, continuing to serve the Lord. And he tells them how to do that in verse 4. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Just start right there and say that's who we need to be as parents and grandparents and as spiritual family, people who put all the priority on the Lord. And then he says, verse 6, these words I'm commanding you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by your way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. You shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What does he say? Just keep this in front of your kids all the time. This covenant that we have with Jesus, you just find opportunities to talk about it while you're around the house, turn off the television,
1: talk about it around your house, when you're riding in the car together, talk about it all the time, because there's nothing more important than our kids growing up to serve the Lord and to go to heaven.
0: I saw this little meme on Facebook. I won't be able to reproduce it in my mind exactly today. But it said something like, it showed a little kid. The picture was of a little kid at bat in a Little League baseball game. It said something like, there's like .002% chance of your kid becoming a Major League baseball player. And underneath it, it said, there's a 100% chance he will face God in judgment. Oh, that one kind of stings too, doesn't it? What do we need to be getting them ready for? If you know your kid's little league batting average but don't know whether he had his Bible class lesson today, you are
1: concentrating on the wrong thing. Thank you. We don't raise our kids to serve the Lord. They lose. Everybody
0: loses. What do you to think about this. What happens to churches? If they're not out winning the lost... So no new blood's coming in. And then we start losing 50, 60, 70, 80% of the kids, and we wonder why churches are declining. Is that pretty easy to figure out? You see it? Okay, i got to press on because I'm running out of time. And I have one more thing I want to talk to you about. Because there's another reason churches decline. They don't teach the loss, They don't take care of their kids. Here's the third question we're going to have to answer, and that is, are we going to work really hard to get along with each other? Because that's the third reason churches decline, because they fight and divide. I mentioned that to you because it is a connecting thread that forms this tapestry of churches that are dying almost in every single one. Somewhere along the way, these folks have had a problem getting along with each other. But let me tell you something interesting about their problems. The vast majority of time, they're over issues of no consequence. Max can help me with this. I don't know, last 20, 30 years that I've been preaching, I don't remember a church fuss over something that mattered. It wasn't like somebody was coming in and trying to suggest that they teach Calvinism and they had to resist Calvinism, and that's why they had a big blow up. Y'all remember me telling you years ago about conducting a meeting? I think I mentioned it here. I was conducting a meeting for this place, having lunch with a preacher, and he was telling me about a big fuss where, where he was.
1: The big fuss was over ceiling fans. Remember that? Ceiling fans. I'm trying to get in my mind what that was like. I mean, like, did some people want them and
0: some people didn't? I'm thinking, wouldn't a sweater fix that? you got to be kidding me. But it happens. A lot of these battles are over personalities, or matters of judgment. But I want you to think about what it does to a church when people go to war with each other. I mean, if two sisters had a heated exchange about the ceiling fans, my guess is they're not going to collaborate to teach the two-year-olds next quarter, don't you think? It our ability to work together. But the other part of that is, the rest of us have to watch that. How discouraging it is. To see people who are supposed to love each other and be disciples bitterly battling over nothing, it leaves people in the wake that, is, that are just cynical and discouraged. And sometimes it's worse than that. I've not described the worst problem. You know that ceiling fan controversy actually created an open fracture? That church split over that. I wanted to get in that new building and see if it had fans. I was really curious. Can you imagine splitting over ceiling fans? I'm thinking, you could have stayed in the building and had the split. Fan this side? Don't I don't know. What's the solution there? So you all know that I really am reluctant to do this, but I do want to just talk real plain about what I've just described.
1: This kind of senseless squabbling, brothers and sisters, is wicked. It's sinful. It's sinful because it is contrary to the love that God
0: said we're supposed to have for each other. John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. Secondly, it works against the unity that Jesus prayed for in John 17. In the very shadow of the cross, his prayer is that we would be one just as he and the Father are one. And thirdly, thirdly, this kind of fussing impedes if it does not completely stop the primary mission to go win lost souls. It is hard to get out there and battle the devil when we are consumed with battling each other. And men and women who engage in this will one day answer to God and explain to Him why they destroyed His family with senseless squabbling. We need to call it what it is. It is the work of the devil, it is evil. Now, think about it. Church isn't winning any lost people, so no new blood's coming in. And they're losing 60, 70, 80% of their kids. And then whatever is left, we're just going to beat it to death with eternal conflict to be sure that it dies, right?
1: So what's the lesson? What do we need to take away? What does the slide say? Well, we work really hard
0: to be one because unity is hard work. When you look at Ephesians for a minute, Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, As he begins the practical part of this letter, Ephesians 4, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We've talked about this language before. Do you remember it? In verse 3, verse 3, being diligent. The idea there is of ongoing hard labor. We don't ever get to the place where we say, this unity thing, we've got that all figured it out, put it on the shelf, we're done. We don't have to worry about that anymore. No, the truth is, brothers and sisters, that church families work unity all the time. And we have to work hard at it. That's the implication of the language here. It is a challenge at times. To get along with one another. In a church of this size, all the judgment calls that have to be made, let me give you a guarantee. At some point, a decision is going to be made here that you are not going to like. Be ready. It's going to happen. And I need to be okay with that because there are all kinds of judgment calls that need to be made. Who can make everybody happy? Get rid of that idea. That's not going to work. I just need to accept that i can't always have my way and that's all right because it may be that this time the other folks are right about that and i need to let them have their way about it and listen we need to be committed to unity when there's a problem unity demands that we do what we get busy working on it and figuring it out i don't just get mad at someone because they hurt my feelings and pack up and go somewhere else where is that in the bible Brothers and sisters have a problem with each other. They sit in a room with the Spirit of Christ, and they work it out. Maybe there's something more fundamental that needs to be happening, though. Back in Ephesians, if you look at chapter 4 and verse 2, he talks about some qualities. He talks about being humble
1: and gentle and patient and tolerance. And loving. Can I be real plain for a minute? Someone says you've been doing that all morning. What's wrong now?
0: Do you know where our spiritual conflicts typically come from? Brothers and sisters, they're the result of spiritual immaturity. We're acting like spiritual adolescents. We haven't put on the qualities described in verse number two that are essential to preserving the unity in the Spirit and the bond of peace. Sometimes we need to grow up and be mature men and women in Christ and handle our differences like mature men and women in Christ. I don't want you to misunderstand me. There are sometimes we have to do battle. Somebody comes in this congregation and they want to teach that you can be saved without being baptized into Jesus Christ, you know what? They try to lead folks away teaching that false doctrine, there's going to be a battle in this church. We will take a stand against error, and we will not let it impact our folks. That's as it should be. And there will be times where battles over truth and error have to be waged. But because times like that will come, doesn't it make it all the more important that we don't engage in unnecessary conflict? Grow up in Christ. Be mature men and women of God and handle our differences in the way that Christ would want us to.
1: Because churches that just can't get along with each other and lose their kids and stop teaching the laws are the churches that die. Let me tell you what's at stake.
0: It's not just whether or not the Dallin Road Church will continue to exist. You know, folks, what you and I can do about that, we can do all we can while it's our watch. What happens beyond that is not within our control. But I'll tell you why that's so important. It's because of the work we do. We are in the business of rescuing lost souls and helping get people get to heaven. It is the most important work on the earth. We need to be together, united as one, working this community because the work we're doing is the most important work on the planet, helping people get to heaven. And that's what this song is about that we're going to sing. Let me click the slide. It's about encouraging you to be washed in the blood because maybe there's someone here today that hasn't done that. It's the most important need in your life to be right with Jesus Christ. And the good news that we can share with you today is that through Jesus Christ, he's given you the opportunity to be washed. Every sin you've committed by his blood can be washed away, and you could be his child. You need to do that today. It's your greatest need. And this song is sung to encourage you to respond to that need. Would you make things right with him? Do it right now while we stand, while we sing.